0: Welcome to The Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Pakistan, a richly textured nation of 200 million people, has come to be defined almost exclusively in terms of its struggle with terror. But are ordinary Pakistanis extremists? And what explains how Pakistanis think? In Pakistan Under Siege, Extremism, Society, and the State, a new book from the Brookings Institution Press, Author Medea Afsal explores the full picture of Pakistan's relationship with extremism and suggests how this important nation can change course. Afsal is a non-resident fellow in global economy and development at Brookings and is an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins SAIS. Also in this episode, we have a new installment of our regular Metro Lens feature in which internationally regarded demographer Bill Fry talks about the size and diversity of the millennial generation. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows, and send any questions you might have for me or our scholars to bcp at brookings.edu. And now, here's my colleague, Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, and his interview with Medea Afzal.
1: Thanks, Fred. And Medea, hello. Good to see you. Good to see you. You write in your new book that Pakistan is too often seen the wrong way by the outside, especially the Western world. What is that perception that is incorrect, that's wrong about Pakistan in general?
2: That's a great question. So Pakistan is really seen sort of as a villainous kind of failing state by the West. And, you know, the perception that really sticks in people's minds is what they see on TV screens and what they see in the newspaper, which is either sort of mobs who are virulently anti-American. So they're burning American flags and chanting death to America, or they see mobs rallying behind Islamist fundamentalists. And those aren't incorrect images. That's not fake news. But that doesn't present the entire picture of Pakistan. I think the other side that we see here in the West is terrorist attacks. And so Pakistan literally burning down And again, that's part of the story and a very important part of the story, but there's more to the country than that. And I think the sort of the final thing I would say is that Pakistan tends to be coupled or maligned with the whole country, its citizens, its democratic government tend to be maligned and packaged with its security forces, especially elements in its security establishment that have supported militant groups.
1: And I think one of the virtues of the book is that you provide this more nuanced, more complex picture of this nation of 200 million people. And part of that is the Pakistani people themselves, that multidimensionality, or what you call multidimensionality of the Pakistani uh, people. What do you mean by that?
2: The starting point really is to recognize it's not that Pakistanis support violent jihad in the majority of the country. You know, in fact, if we take a look at just polling numbers, 90 percent, the exact numbers, 89 percent of Pakistanis said they thought that violence against civilians in the name of Islam was never justified. More Pakistanis are unfavorable towards terrorist groups than are favorable towards terrorist groups. So there's a minority, although some may say it's significant. There's only a minority that's favorable towards terrorist groups. And these are not just terrorist groups that attack Pakistan alone. They're unfavorable towards terrorist groups that attack India as well as the United States. That's sort of an important facet of the picture to recognize. So that's one dimension. That's a good side to the story.
1: It's an important dimension, I think, too. More than 25,000 people have been killed on terror attacks in the last decade in Pakistan. Yeah. The fact that you can cite these statistics uh, in light of that, and that it's not 100% in one direction or the other.
2: Are you referring to the fact that even though 25,000 people have been killed, there are still people who are favorable towards terrorist groups. Or, is or, that sort or, of one dimension or, or, or of it?
1: they haven't all been radicalized in some way oh, to right. join with a group or to be antithetical toward the United States and Toto.
2: Absolutely. So in fact, the really interesting thing that's happened is that we actually see Pakistani's attitudes change when they themselves became the victims of terror. So this denunciation of violence in the name of Islam and this denunciation of terrorist groups writ large started happening after Pakistanis themselves became the targets of terror. And so not only did they turn against the Pakistan Taliban that was attacking them, but they turned against all groups that were attacking civilians anywhere in the world. So that really shows that there was some empathy born out of it. But I think the unfortunate other dimension to this good news is that Pakistanis have some confusion about who these terrorist groups are that target them and why they're doing so. They think that terrorism against Pakistani citizens is either some kind of conspiracy that's been hatched by the United States or by India and their intelligence agencies, or there's actually some latent sympathy for the goals of terrorists. So they'll say that these terrorists, the Pakistan Taliban, if they do recognize them as terrorists, are only engaging in in attacks to implement Sharia or Islamic law in Pakistan. And that is a justifiable goal.
1: I wanted to ask you about some of these terror groups, the larger ones that are in the country, because you talk about them in some length. In the book, you mentioned the Pakistan Taliban, mm-hmm. as you just did, and also Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about these groups, the relationship with the Pakistani state, and as you were just pointing out, too, the relationship with the Pakistani people, too?
2: Sure. The Pakistan Taliban is a group that is distinct from the the Afghan Taliban, but has links to the Afghan Taliban as well. So it really was created in uh, 2007 as an umbrella kind of organization called the Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan. It's like a group of Pakistan-Taliban organizations. It was formed in the wake of an attack by the Pakistani military on a fundamentalist mosque in Islamabad called the Red Mosque the Lal Masjid, where some students of the mosque, madrasa students, as well as...
1: And madrasas are religious schools.
2: Yes, exactly. Religious seminaries, as well as one of the leaders of the mosque was killed. So that was sort of the catalyst. Essentially, where the Pakistan Taliban came from is the jihadists who had returned from fighting the Afghan-Soviet war in the 1980s, when they returned back to Pakistan's tribal areas and to the Swat Valley, they started reconstituting themselves. And the precursor of the Pakistan Taliban was a group called the TNSM. It's a long name, the tehreek e nifaz e Mohammed. muhammad The idea is that they wanted to implement Sharia in the Swat Valley. Sufi Muhammad was a fighter in this Afghan jihad, and then he came back and constituted this group. Fazlullah, who's the current head of the Pakistan Taliban is the son-in-law of Sufi Muhammad. So then in the early 2000s, when Pakistan joined the U.S.-led war on terror in Afghanistan against al-Qaeda and more broadly against the Afghan Taliban, the Pakistan Taliban started constituting itself to basically fight against the Pakistani state, which had allied itself with the U.S. in its its war against al-Qaeda and the Afghan Taliban. The Pakistani state really had kind of an ambivalent attitude towards the Pakistan Taliban when it started constituting itself. So in the mid-2000s, they said, these are our brothers. I'll quote Pakistani general who said that Baitullah Mesud, who went on to become one of the leaders of the Pakistan Taliban, is not a rebel, but a patriotic citizen and soldier of Pakistan. When these groups started attacking Pakistani citizens, the state still tried to engage in peace talks with them and never had a good counter narrative when it came to what the group was claiming. And finally, it was only in 2014 that the Pakistani military engaged in a proper military operation against the Pakistan Taliban. It was called Zarb-e-Azb. It occurred after they attacked the Karachi airport. And then the state's will to really fight the Pakistan Taliban was hardened after they killed 130 schoolchildren in Peshawar in December of 2014. And now the group stands nearly decimated.
1: Your book includes survey data, Mm -hmm. field work you did. Some of that was on Pakistani attitudes toward Mm -hmm. al-Qaeda, which still has some footprint in Pakistan. And you found that there's a clear majority who do not support al-Qaeda's attacks on the United States, but a majority sympathize with al-Qaeda's attitudes toward the United States. Can you talk about those results, that divergence? How how should we understand that?
2: That's a great question. So this data is from 2009, before Osama bin Laden was killed in Abbottabad, Pakistan, in May of 2011. The data is from a poll, and it asked Pakistani respondents about both al-Qaeda's attacks on Americans. And then Al Qaeda's values or its attitudes towards the US. What was sort of shocking was that 60 plus percent of the respondents said that they opposed Al Qaeda's attacks on Americans, which is good, so they denounce violence. More than half of that percentage, 34 percent of respondents said that though they opposed such attacks, they still shared al-Qaeda's attitudes towards America. There was 25 percent of the respondents said that they also supported al-Qaeda's attacks towards Americans and shared its attitudes towards the U.S. That group, because it both condones violence as well as shares the ideology is sort of the most worrisome group. But the fact that more than half of the respondents who said that they do not condone violence still support the ideology of al-Qaeda really shows us that what is happening is that the propaganda of these terrorist groups finds resonance in the population. And the propaganda really is Twofold. One is that there is really a war between Islam and the West. And it's sort of the old us versus them argument. And Pakistanis find themselves on the side of Islam and against the West. And then the other is that. America is a country which violates Pakistan's sovereignty, that anti-American argument. So the fact that we see the sympathy for al-Qaeda's ideology really stems from the amount of anti-Americanism in the Pakistani population and also the success of the propaganda of militant groups.
1: So this anti-Americanism, when it comes to subscribing to the ideology of al-Qaeda, is seeing the West... And especially the United States engaged in a war on Islam and, and Pakistan being bearing the brunt of that through drone strikes, I guess, is an argument you make. And also the favoritism toward India plays into this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There are multiple kind of aspects of anti-Americanism. And I should note that there's sort of a baseline level of anti-Americanism, if you will, in the Pakistani population. But views do change over time. In the time period I'm studying from the early 2000s till last year, the lowest level of unfavorability towards America was something like 56%. So 56% of Pakistanis at a low had unfavorable views of America. And that was in 2006 after they received a good amount of aid in the wake of the Kashmir earthquake in 2005. And then the highest levels of anti-Americanism were in 2012. And we'll see that number may increase again. And that was in the wake of multiple events in 2011 that really the Pakistanis considered to be a blow to their own sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Three things happened. The first was the raid of the Osama bin Laden compound. And the fascinating thing is that initially it was considered an embarrassment to Pakistan, and Pakistanis were kind of sort of didn't know how to react. But very quickly, in the wake of the raid, the Pakistani military propagated this narrative that this was an attack on Pakistan's sovereignty. And that is the narrative that started seeping through in the population. The second thing was in November of 2011, there was an accidental attack by NATO that killed 24 Pakistani soldiers. That was a big event. And then the third was this CIA contractor, Raymond Davis, killed three Pakistani men on a street in Lahore. And he was very quickly acquitted of charges through payment of what's called blood money and sort of flown out of the country. And that really struck a nerve with Pakistanis. When it comes to the factors, that change anti-Americanism or change views towards America, things like drone strikes, which are considered to violate Pakistani sovereignty and which are considered to show a disregard for Pakistani lives because... The narratives going around in Pakistan are that hundreds of Pakistanis are dying in these drone strikes, and they're striking terror in the hearts of Pakistanis who live around those areas. So, drone strikes make a big difference. The relationship that the United States has with India, as you mentioned, makes a huge difference because America is considered to have favored India relative to Pakistan in its history, though that's not always been the case. But even in Pakistan's textbooks, we actually see America is considered to have favored India and worked against Pakistani yeah, interests. And I want to come
1: back to the textbooks yes. in a moment sure. because that's an essential part of your book, sure. understanding yes. the educational system. I just want to complete this discussion of the United yes. States under yes. the Trump administration's policies because it's very explicit about its leaning toward India, yes. which is not going to help with the relations. And even more to the point is cutting off the security aid, mm-hmm. which just occurred recently. So the relationship which had already become sour even more starting around 2011, as you noted, Mm -hmm. is not looking very good now in 2018 either and promises not to be much better.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's looking worse. In 2011, the sense was that Pakistan and 2011, 2012, the Obama administration had started souring on Pakistan because of its support for the Haqqani network and for lashkar e taiba
1: And the Haqqani but network is?
2: The Haqqani network is a brutal offshoot of the Afghan Taliban that is considered to have sanctuary in Pakistan, allegedly with the support of Pakistan's security establishment. And they attack From these alleged sanctuaries in Pakistan, they're attacking both U.S. forces as well as Afghan forces and Afghan government targets and civilians in Afghanistan. Pakistan is considered to be supporting the Haqqani network. And this became clear to the Obama administration, though there were U.S. military officials like Admiral Mike Mullen who talked about this. The idea was that there was never public denunciation of Pakistan to the extent that the Trump administration has engaged in it. And Pakistan really cares about how it is presented in the world and what people say about it. And in particular, it cares about achieving this elusive parity with India. And on the one hand, India is considered to be an important player on the world stage, but also engaging in an important partnership with the United States, just as Pakistan's relationship with the United States is souring. That is really rankles both the Pakistani state as well as Pakistani citizens.
0: And now Metro Lens. This edition features excerpts from a longer conversation that I had with Bill Fry. You'll be able to hear the full interview in an upcoming episode of The Brookings
3: Cafeteria. Hello, I'm Bill Fry. I'm a senior fellow with the Metropolitan Policy Program here at the Brookings Institution. The millennial generation, as I define it, is over 75 million in number. As I say, other people might define it differently and might have bigger numbers, but it's at least 75 million, and it's now bigger than the baby boom generation. It's getting about a quarter of the whole U.S. population, maybe 23% inching to a quarter of the U.S. population. 30% of the voting age population, which I think is very important, is going to be important going forward. Millennials are all adults, and they're all of voting age, and I think that's really important going forward. And they're also a significant part of the working age population. Close to 40% of the working age population are millennials. Their diversity, which is the main theme of this, is quite important. 44% minorities are the largest minority adult population we've had in the United States up till now, and I think that's very, very important. We're moving to the middle of this century where the Census Bureau says we're going to be a minority white population. Already that's the case for people in the early years. The Census Bureau says people under age 10 are already minority white. So as we progress going forward, this millennial generation is really going to be the generation because of its racial diversity to sort of break the mold and, you know, just plow ahead and make people understand why diversity is so important in this country. And their achievements... Their examples as role models for the generations that follow, their ability to overcome you know, racial disparities and hurdles that have been thrown against racial minorities over the years. I mean, we see it in politics. We see it in all kinds of ways. To the extent they're going to be able to do that, they're going to forge the way for the generations that follow them. And that's why I think they're so important as the first, you know, very minority adult generation. They have a big role to play, and I think they're up to it. Part of the reason why the millennial generation is so racially diverse has to do with past immigration to the United States. And I emphasize past immigration, not necessarily current immigration. That is, during the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, we had higher numbers of people coming to the U.S. from Latin America, from Asia, sort of a consequence of changes in the immigration law, really, in the mid-60s. But it didn't really start having an impact until the 80s and 90s. And of course, those people usually come to the U.S. as young adults, and their children... Help to build up that youthful population. At the same time, the white population is getting older and continues to get older. And we actually, in the last 10 years, have had an absolute decline of whites under age 18 and a modest change in whites during the millennial population. So the growth of this millennial population from babies on has a lot to do with first and second generation Americans. Now, I have an asterisk there, and the asterisk is people are thinking, well, immigration is the cause of diversity in the United States. Well, past immigration has been, but in fact today, most of the growth in the Hispanic population, most of the growth in the minority population are from birth to people that are already here, not so much immigration anymore. If you just look at the general demography of how the country is changing, you'll see that the only way we're going to have improvements in our labor force, in our productivity, in, you know, the kind of Energy that we need to have people working and contributing to our country is to make sure that this next generation, the millennials and the people following them, are treated well and are taken seriously and these kind of gaps that we were talking about before the racial and social inequality with respect to education and home ownership it also exists with respect to poverty and income and other kinds of issues those are quite important and not just the inequality but the racial inequality that's part of that and i think millennials you know they're very optimistic surveys have shown that especially black hispanic and asian millennials even more than whites believe that they're going to do better than their parents in the future and that their generation is going to do better than their parents in the future. They have very optimistic views about this country and I think if we kind of just let them go and kind of embrace that optimism and have leaders that go along with those kinds of messages, I think we're going to be much better off. But getting back to it, the millennials are the bridge to the future and, you know, how they fare I think is how we're going to fare as a country going forward. You can listen to
0: more MetroLens pieces on our SoundCloud channel.
1: I want to return back into domestic politics and the role of Islam in Pakistan. You write about the role of Islam in the Pakistani state carefully and dispassionately, and those are strong parts of the book. There's one incident, though, that you write about with a certain passion, and that occurred on January 4th, 2011, I believe that you would agree that it crystallizes how tense that role is, the role of Islam and the tension with the state. And that was the assassination of Salman Tazir. Can you tell us what happened and what that portrays, what that shows us about Islam and the state and society in Pakistan today?
2: Absolutely. Salman Tazir was the governor of Punjab in 2010. And in 2011, on January 4th, he was shot and killed by his security guard, Mumtaz Qadri. Shot 27 times by his security guard as he left a restaurant to go back to Lahore in the middle of an open market in Islamabad, which was a crowded area at lunchtime. And so there were plenty of onlookers and even his own security detail kind of looked on as this one security guard shot and killed him. So Mumtaz Qadri recited the Islamic Declaration of Faith as he shot him and surrendered immediately. And he claimed to have killed Salman Tasir because he said he was a slave of the prophet. What Salman Tasir had been doing is arguing for reform of Pakistan's blasphemy laws. And the whole subcontinent has blasphemy laws that have been in its penal code since the time of the British. But the specific laws that have become really a problem in Pakistan that sort of form the core of Pakistan's regressive, harsh blasphemy laws are two clauses which refer to offenses against the Qur'an, the Holy Book of Muslims, and refer to offenses against Muhammad, the prophet. And basically, offenses against the Quran are punishable by imprisonment for life. Offenses against Prophet Muhammad are punishable by imprisonment for life or death. And so people can be sentenced to death for these offenses, which are not actually defined. Hmm. So anything can be construed to be an offense.
1: So it can be interpreted on the part of the legal system what this act is, whether it's blasphemous or not.
2: Absolutely. And what's even more worrisome is that citizens have taken that into their own hands because it can be interpreted by a man on a street and The moment he yells that so-and-so has committed blasphemy, violent mobs get basically charged up and they run after the person to the extent that either they engage in vigilante violence, so they kill the person charged with blasphemy, or the person basically has no way of being out in public anymore. And actually, it's safer for him to be imprisoned than be out in public. So there have been at least 50 vigilante killings that have occurred. And since these laws were instituted, about 1,300 people have been charged with blasphemy. No one has actually been killed yet by the state for blasphemy.
1: But as you point out in the book, in the case of Tazir's killer, he was finally put to death, but it was a long drawn-out process. And there was a large public outcry against his assassination. And that's what was interesting to me is just this public support of a man who carried out an assassination, as having done the proper deed. And you point out how difficult this is to deal with.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, no, so he claimed to have killed Tassir, not because Tassir committed blasphemy, but in Pakistan, even arguing for reform of the blasphemy law is considered blasphemy. So... He was really lionized and kind of became a hero in Pakistan. And there were flower petals showered on him by lawyers as he would be shuttled from the courtrooms. Right now, there is a mausoleum right outside Islamabad where people go to pay their respects. What is actually shocking, I just saw a picture of the ex-prime minister's son-in-law this month has gone to pay his respects. To Mumtaz Qadri, the killer of Salman Taseer. You would find the majority of Pakistanis saying that he is to be defended and that Taseer deserved to be killed. And in death, Mumtaz Qadri, the killer, has even become more revered by many to the extent that thousands were at his funeral. And the latest iteration of extremism in Pakistan is this movement called. T-L-Y-R-A, the tehreek e -e Ya Rasulullah. This was something that was just sort of coming into the national consciousness as I was finishing up the writing of this book. It's a movement that supports Mumtaz Qadri, and that has really crystallized in the last year or so. And it held Islamabad under siege literally two times, once in 2016, another in 2017. And it argues for no leniency shown to anyone committed of engaging in blasphemy. And then, two, it says that there should be no change at all in the blasphemy law. And the government has, in Pakistan multiple times, just agreed to the demands of these extremists on the street.
1: Your book breaks new ground by discussing how Islam is inculcated into students through their education. But it is a Pakistani state-mediated ideology of Islam, you argue, one tinged with conspiracy. Can you describe these textbooks a bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So these textbooks as they exist today, and I really focus on textbooks of Pakistan studies, which is sort of Pakistan's history. In 1979, General Zia, who was a military dictator who was not only the person who engaged in changing Pakistan's legal system and making it hardline, but also changed Pakistan's curricula, under his rule, the education department put out sort of a document which says that the goal of these textbooks should be to aid Pakistan in becoming a completely Islamized state. So that was the explicit goal of the textbooks, is to actually make the country completely Islamized. The textbooks heavily mention Islam. They literally start out by saying that the ideology of Pakistan is Islam, that Pakistan is defined in terms of religion. They glorify the concept of jihad, and in its armed connotation, so say that armed warfare is glorified against whoever is considered the other. It could be India, it could be other religious groups. And they really paint Pakistan as a victim, not only of India, uh, not only of the British colonizers, but also of the West. And so I'll read a couple of quotes that might crystallize some of this almost propaganda that is in these books. So One is the armed forces of Pakistan, filled with the spirit of jihad. So jihad is something that the armed forces are engaging in, forced an enemy many times bigger than it to face a humiliated defeat. So there are many things happening here. The enemy many times bigger is India. Hmm. The army is engaging in jihad, they're saying, against India. And then they're saying they defeated India when, in fact, they did not. So there's actually a lie, you know, or a falsehood in this line. India is always painted as evil. The word evil is used and the enemy is used many times. In other sentences, India had a constant wish to weaken the integrity of Pakistan for one reason or the other. So the idea that India was engaging in a conspiracy against Pakistan, there is another line, the process of separation of East Pakistan was secretly supported by America. So the idea that the West and India are engaging in conspiracies against Pakistan, we can actually see it play out in many of these attitudes that Pakistanis have on terrorist groups in which they're saying that it's actually America and India who are engaging in terrorism against Pakistan or supporting terrorist groups against Pakistan. The sense of conspiracy against the country is sort of a deep-rooted sense, and all the country's problems are in some sense blamed on these two powers.
1: You point out also that not all textbooks are like these. There are the Cambridge O-level textbooks, which most secular (laughs) citizens or those who approach university level read, which provide a much more objective accounting of what happens. There's some discussion of educational reforms, which could lead to change.
2: Let me preface this by saying the mentions of India as the enemy and the words evil and jihad have been reduced in the textbooks quite a bit in the last few years. So there has been one reform. While it hasn't really changed the structure of the textbooks, it has reduced the amount of negativity in them quite a bit.
1: How likely are we to see what you call for? A Pakistan has redefined its nationalism without the crutch of religion.
2: It's not something that is going to happen overnight. And any time over the last couple of years where I've seen inflection points where it seems like Pakistan is taking one step towards this goal, something else happens that if Pakistan takes one step forward towards this goal, which is a goal on the horizon, it takes maybe a step and a half back. Mm. So I talk in the book about a trip to Lahore exactly a year ago in the winter of 2016, you know, early 2017, where there were Christmas trees everywhere. A Christmas train was launched from Islamabad, where Pakistan's then prime minister was talking a lot about his vision of the Qaeda's Pakistan, Jinnah, Pakistan's founder's vision of Pakistan. And that is really considered to be a positive, progressive vision for the country. And things looked positive. At the same time, secular bloggers disappeared. You know, there are journalists who write against the military establishment who are being disappeared. And the word is used passively because we don't know who's disappearing them. <laughs> but people allege that it's Pakistan security agencies who are disappearing these journalists. So secular bloggers, those who are critical of Pakistan's military establishment are suffering while we see the leader of that fundamentalist red mosque out on the street, we see Hafiz Saeed, who's the leader of uh, lashkar e taiba released from house arrest and addressing rallies. There are countless examples. You know, there is one step forward where it has recognized an Ahmadiyya scientist who was a Nobel Prize winner who really went unrecognized in Pakistan because of his faith. And at the very same time, we see other steps backward. So, At this point, what we have seen are a few alarming trends in the last few months. Pakistan's prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, was ousted from power in July on corruption charges. Its military is gaining ground. And Pakistan's military really, though outwardly it functions in a secular kind of manner, it is really part of the Pakistani state that subscribes most to this notion of the Pakistan ideology being equivalent to Islam. Pakistan's democratic governments have done that too, but they have done that in the service of kind of political opportunism and for strategic goals, whereas the military has also done it strategically, but it's found that it benefits from and. It is sustained by this equivalence of Pakistan with Islam and this notion of jihad. So the military's own motto is iman, taqwa, and jihad, which is faith, piety, and holy war. And whenever it ascends, the idea that Pakistan redefines its nationalism not on the basis of religion and not on the basis of an enmity with India that goal becomes more elusive. One problem with sort of the Pakistani state currently is that it doesn't quite recognize how to counter extremism. It's taken, actions against the Pakistan Taliban, and those are military sort of kinetic actions, but it has not actually countered the narrative of the Taliban. It hasn't sort of painstakingly separated the narrative of the terrorist groups and sort of militant propaganda from its own narrative. And it's no wonder that its citizens are confused. So that's one thing that there was some hope in the wake of that Peshawar army public school massacre that the Taliban engaged in in 2014, that the Pakistani government had finally recognized that it really needed to counter militant propaganda, but it really has failed at doing so over the last few years. So I have been able to find my RA, actually, my research assistant, went and found militant propaganda freely available in Pakistan that actually glorifies the victories of ISIS in Iraq. And so the failure to recognize sort of the existential threat that extremism poses to the Pakistani state is in some sense the real crux of the battle that the Pakistani state must engage in. And once it does that, then it can sort of start beginning to redefine itself in a different manner.
1: So it's a skeptical optimism sure. um, yes. that guides you. Thank you, Medea, for stopping by to talk about your new book with us today, Pakistan Under Siege, which we've just published here at Brookings Press.
2: Thank you.
0: Visit our website at brookings.edu to learn more about Medea Afzal's book or find it wherever you get books. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo with assistance from Mark Holster, to producers Brendan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelahan, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Our intern is Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, Five on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, and listen to it in all of the usual places. If you do visit Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dudes.